Welcome to the Good Life Podcast, 30 Minutes With. I'm your host, Tim Cadney. Today, I'm sitting down with the man that started it all, founder and CEO of Good Life Fitness, David Patch Levins, or as we call him, Patch. We're going to talk about the mindset to go from one club to 100, what it takes to be the top fitness professional in the world, and the future for Good Life Fitness beyond the pandemic. Welcome to the show, Patch. You know, I'm very excited to sit down with you today and talk to you. And, you know, my first question, of course, is how are you doing? <laughs> well, that depends on what kind of COVID animal is attacking me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's going on? But overall, I'm doing very positive, you know. I think step by step, we're going in the right direction as a company and we're going in the right direction as a society and we're, we're getting our heads around things. And I think we'll come out of this okay. In the long run, we'll come out of it smarter and better. So you just, when it's really dark out, you got to remember that there's going to be light. A hundred percent. And that's the attitude I have to keep. And, you know, I focus on staying at 10 and being positive and Deal with the reality that when you get slapped on the side of the face, the rest of your body's okay. Exactly. I, and I like what you, I like how you referred to it, the COVID animal that's attacking you. So I hope it's like a COVID gerbil or like a squirrel, <laughs> something small. <laughs> it's okay. Life without challenges would be boring, right? Exactly. When we don't have challenges, we make them up, whether it's physical, psychological, or social. So we, we don't get, you know, we don't have to worry about making stuff up right now. We just got to deal with the stuff that's thrown at us. Absolutely. And it, it really comes down to being adaptable and um, just going with what is in front of us at that given time. So, you know, we know a lot about your good life story. And what I do want to get to know more about is the beginning. And it, it was interesting when I was getting ready for this interview with you, I, I found a quote by Oprah Winfrey and it, it really resonated with me about good life and you. And she says, don't worry about being successful, but work towards being significant and the success will naturally follow. So, you know, I, and it made me think about that moment. You know, there's a picture of you where you, you're wearing the Nautilus uniform and then you had that one club and then you thought to yourself, I want to have a hundred. So how did you make that possible? Well, there's two parts to that story. The first part is when I first thought about buying this company from the guy that was running it and was unsuccessful. And I was working in the club. No, I was working out in the club because the national rowing team said, you need to go to this club. And I'm working out there and I was doing a master's in exercise physiology at the time. And a lot of the folks, in this case, guys that were doing their masters were working there part-time because the ownership didn't understand the business they were in. They didn't understand what they were supposed to be doing. And so they were basically kind of floating through it. And I thought, you know, I can, I can run this business different. And how I'll run it different is actually getting people in shape. Because what the business was, was basically selling memberships. And that was it, right? And you absolutely have to sell memberships. But because they didn't know why they were selling memberships, and because they didn't care about the people that were coming in, they were just numbers, it wasn't working. As soon as I started to focus, when I took it over, I said, what I'll do different here is just care about people. I'll care about the staff and I'll care about the members and then it'll start to run different. The same thing happened uh, about, I think five years ago, I took over a group of clubs in New Zealand that were in trouble. I'd loaned somebody some money for these clubs and to get my money back, I had to go back there and take over these clubs. And I, I went and visited the 16 clubs over there and traveled around and uh, with the, the guys that were in charge of the company, you know, the CEO of the company at the time and the, who still is, at the end of it, he says, Pat, you just spent three days with us. And you talked about how you're going to do this and fix that and help the members here and help the staff there. And you didn't talk about money at all. 
And I looked at him and I actually was kind of startled. I said, well, if we do all those things, we'll make money. He says, yeah, but you didn't talk about that. I said, well, to me, it's kind of self-evident, right? You know, in that group of clubs in New Zealand, now there's 42 clubs there. It's not that there isn't competition in Canada or New Zealand or any more place in the world. It's that you can create an opportunity, a unique selling position by just simply being good. So that, that was my attitude. So now if you go back to when did I decide to have 100 clubs, it was the morning after my 40th birthday. I got out with a whole bunch of my buddies and partied fairly hard. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're sitting around the next day talking about what goes on. And, you know, they're saying, well, what, what now? You've got 22 clubs or whatever it was at the time. And, you know, you're obviously really successful. And what's going to happen for the future? You know, at your board at your birthday is kind of like when you take stock and think, what are you going to do, right? And at that point, we'd been in business 15 years. So then you go, well, the next big milestone will be one of 50. Another number that goes with 50. Well, 100 goes with 50 in backwards patch logic. <laughs> so, you know, all, at 50, I've been in business 25 years. So 25, 50, next number is 100. I thought, you know, you can do 10 more clubs. You know, what can you accomplish for the country, the company, for yourself? What difference can you make if you create a significant goal? So it's kind of like, you know, you can run two miles. Can you run 10? And when you can run 10, you think, can I run a marathon? Right. So I decided, you know, the next goal would be when I was 50 would be to have 100 clubs. So 25, 50, 100, right? That's how scientific it was. <laughs> you know, so it's not different. And someone comes into our club and says, I'd like to lose 10 pounds. I've been 10 pounds overweight for 20 years. Can you help me lose the 10 pounds? It's not different than I'm highly stressed. Well, come on to, into our body flow class and lose the stress and gain the mental and physical flexibility simultaneously, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really the same process of its self-improvement and growing with others, right? That, that was the goal. So the first person I called was Jane. And then she said, you realize if we want to grow to 100 clubs, we have to change a lot of things we do, how we operate, how we think, all that kind of stuff. I said, okay, let's do that. So no one had ever done it. Now, just because no one had ever done it didn't mean it can't be done. Yeah. It means, okay, what do we need to learn to do this? And what do we already know? And so that pr started the process of the sky's the limit. We can accomplish this, right? That, that was a, a big thing. And this, the same kind of thing happened when we were moving our 18,000 square foot head office club at the Richmond location to the, what became the Galleria location, which was 80,000 feet. It was our big first club, you know, the one in downtown London. I decided that, you know, let's go big. Everyone said, well, that's impossible. That can't be done. But I figured out a way to finance it. I figured out a way to do it. And I figured out a way to sell the memberships and get the city on board. We built that whole club in four months. Demolished it, built it, financed it, did everything in four months. You know, because the lease was expiring in the other location. And part of the reason we did it is because our landlord was Labatt's. And if they couldn't take over that location in four months, the city of London was going to lose all of Labatt's head office jobs. And I thought, well, that's not good for the city. And it got me to think, what could you do to make, you know, because I, I had an option to stay. But what, what could you do to make things different? So 
we went to this other location. That paved the way. All everything we learned in that four months about how to open a bigger clubs paved the way for us to do the clubs we did across the country that were large. You know, that forced learning is no different than go to 100 clubs, let's build this big club, right? And there are three or four people that I know that were members that came up to me and said, if Patch, if you can do that, I'm going to open up my own business and do this. Patch, if you can do that, I'm going to expand my law practice. Patch, if you can do that, I'm going to become a supervisor in my heating and ventilation company. And, and the one guy that I buy my clothes from, Robin, runs a clothing store called Andrew Douglas. And he said, you know, I want to open up my own clothing store. And will you still be a customer if I do? I said, well, sure. And he says, because if you can build this 80,000 foot club, I can own my own clothing store. You know, and that's no different than my premise for my personal trainers is to have them realize they can build their own business inside of our company. Our fitness advisors to know that they're changing all these lives so they can be part of a team, but be individual performers, right? And that, you know, a group fitness instructor can be a rock star in that room inside the, the thing we set up. So it's always about how can you make everybody win? And I think a lot of people don't really realize like the journey it took you to get to the clubs that you're at. Over 400 clubs nationwide, largest global fitness industry conference, gyms all over the globe. You mentioned the ones that you have in Australia. So really, what does it take to be the top fitness professional in the world? Um, a great team. I'm not the top fitness professional in the world. I'm the top leader of fitness professionals. What, what would make someone the top fitness professional in the world? I'm not sure you could even qualify or characterize that. But, you know, I get to be part of a team that is really good at a lot of different things. I consider myself lucky to work with so many talented people that really care about the people that are members. My job now is to be the imaginative figurehead and not actually have to do all the work anymore because it's impossible to do all the work anymore. Like when, when, when we opened that 80,000 foot club, I convinced Bill Van Heron to come back to work on the construction side. He worked 16 hours a day in that spot and I worked eight. And then I also ran the company in the other 16 hours a day. You know, for four months, we didn't sleep, we didn't sleep a whole lot, right? Right. You know, that's, that's how you do that kind of thing. So to be the top fitness professional in the world, that was never the goal and intention. The goal and intention was to run the best fitness club. And right back to your initial question, if I run the best fitness club, the key really is to deliver a, an experience to the members that makes a difference. So they choose our club over another and they choose exercising over the coach. So it always comes back to that. You know, let's talk about, you know, we just talked a lot about opening clubs and let's talk about the current reality and the pandemic and the pandemic has hit good life very hard december 2020 i believe we had less than 50 clubs open total i remember at the end of july 2020 when we reopened in toronto and ontario and we had a call with you and, and i remember somebody asked you this question of just like what do you what do you see is going to be the future like what's going to happen now that we're open and and you called it you had seen it happen in other parts of the world we're open we're closed we're open we're closed and nothing was farther from the truth. So what was it like having your clubs closed during the pandemic? And, you know, what were you thinking during those times? It's like having broken bones, surgery. You know, you got to go through it, come out the other side, and you know you're going to have to do rehab. And you know you have to have faith. And you know you have to eat the right food. And you know you have to exercise to get better. And you know you have to do all these things because of the accident, because of the surgery that you don't normally have to do in your life. And you know that what they call it an accident because you had not, you know, 
It's like getting blindsided you're on your bicycle and a car hits you. It's not your fault, um, but you're paying the price. Right. Right. And so that's the scenario we were in as a company and then we were in as individuals. And, you know, I get totally mad at the governments that don't realize that fitness should be an essential right. Mm -hmm. People should be allowed to exercise. I think it's ridiculous that, you know, you can go buy booze or you can go to a cannabis store or an alcohol store and buy that, but you can't go and exercise. We wouldn't have as many people in the hospitals with severe COVID if they'd been allowed to exercise. It's totally backwards the way they've done things. But then I remind myself that, you know, when, when I started this in 1979, I had to convince athletes that strength training was a good idea. Mm-hmm. I got in trouble. People threatened me because I wouldn't let them smoke in the club. You know, if I wasn't 6'5 and in pretty good shape, there would have been some serious ramifications, right? <laughs> you know, I just said you can't smoke in the club. And people thought that was ridiculous back then. But no one thinks it's ridiculous now. So hopefully these politicians will get their heads together and realize these were bad decisions that should have been made different. But change takes time. You know, so all, all the people that are working at all the fitness clubs and recreation centers they are leading the change that will make a difference in society. Because the healthcare, healthcare system cannot cope from a lack of activity. And, you know, the, the average age of death is not getting better. If anything, it's getting worse, right? All these things, you know, like climate change, you can pretend it doesn't exist, but it exists. Hopefully people get their head around. We have to do something to look after ourselves. Mm-hmm. And even if the politicians don't, the smart people will sit back and go, you might not believe that fitness is important, but I do, and I'm going to do something about it. So that's preaching to the choir, yeah. and we're going to just make the choir as big as we can. So do you think these opportunities to be at the table, because I know there's been discussions and push to get us back open when we were in lockdowns, do you think these discussions have kind of opened the eyes of the politicians? I'd love to say yes, but I don't think so. I think it's, it's opened the eyes of some people, but not enough of them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a hill they want to die on. And then the problem, and the problem with exercise is everyone wants to do the amount that's right for their lives and their time of life and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So there isn't a one-stop answer that a politician can use, with the exception of you should have the right to exercise. I'm not going to force you to, but you should have the right. You shouldn't be denied that right. That part totally frustrates me. I mean, we had some good conversations when we made the white paper on the right to considering fitness as essential right. And Adam Van Cooperton, you know, ex-Olympian, now a member of parliament, was totally on, on board with us. But he's just one of many politicians, right? Right. And there are, there are a lot of politicians that don't exercise. But the ones that do had these private places they could go to to exercise. They weren't like Joe Average that couldn't go out and exercise. Or maybe they had enough money they could have home equipment. Where most people don't have the space or the money to, to do that, right? I, I, I know people are going to come back into our clubs. They're going to come back with a zeal to look after themselves, a zeal to see other people. And I think they're going to affect other people to come in too. A lot of people that didn't exercise before, before and then were told they couldn't will start to do it because it's almost an act of rebellion to do the thing that you're told you couldn't do. And the people that did exercise before are going to say, I got to recover. I got to get it back. It's kind of like it's going to be January for a year, you know, because, you know, I do not want this COVID weight. 
but even worse than the weight. I don't want this COVID feeling of lethargy. The price of inactivity is apathy. You know, and how, how much TV can I actually watch? At a certain point, you kind of go, I don't want to watch anymore. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I also think, you know, I, I really like what you talked about in terms of not everybody's in the same situation. Like you might not have the ability to set up something in your own home. And, but there's a, like, we're creatures of habit. And home is not the place where we predominantly exercise. And there are things that will take us away from that mindset to kind of make it happen. You have a gym, you, you said it, you, you have people around you, you're, you're in there, everybody's exercising, I'm, I have to follow suit. You get into a class, this person's on the stage, taking me through a workout for an hour, I, I got to give them my attention. So, you know, and I think that's where I, I was getting frustrated with the government it's just like you don't understand that we need the environments to do these things. And yes, what you're doing with, you know, like these active street closures and giving people the opportunity to run and bike is is one thing. But again, it's like if that's not viable to somebody based on their ability to move or they don't have the equipment like rollerblades or a bike, you're still limiting people's ability to get healthy and stay healthy. Not to mention, you know, in case you haven't noticed, we live in Canada cold it's cold and wet some of the time right yeah then there's the the safety factor especially for you know women Mm -hmm. are you safe all the time when you're out there yeah so you got weather you got safety and then let's say you're a 55 year old person with potential heart condition if you're in a club everybody who works in that club knows how to save your life so there's all those variables right it's not that you shouldn't exercise outside being outside is awesome for you. Having the variety of equipment, the quality of equipment, the quality of staff makes all the other stuff better. What's the future for Good Life beyond the pandemic? What do you see? I I see that it's going to be our best years ever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be like easier to have people grasp that if they're going to look, if they want to live longer, if they want to have a high quality of life, if they want to have energy, if they want to have vitality, if they want to be productive, if they want to have a good relationship, if they want to have a high self-esteem, feel in control of things, they got to look after themselves. And if they don't want to end up in the hospital, they got to look after themselves. Mm-hmm. The hospital's job is to look after you when you're injured or sick outside of your control. So we know that if you smoke, you have a high percentage of getting cancer and every other known cancer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not a wise lifestyle choice. And we know that if you don't exercise, similarly, your risk on most cancers is significantly higher. You will have higher body fat percent. And that also increases the risks of all kinds of illnesses. And on top of that, we know that your psychological profile is greatly enhanced and improved if you exercise and you'll be more productive, you'll make more money, you'll have a happier attitude to life. So you're gonna pay the, if you don't do those things, you will pay a price the other way in a lower quality life. And no doctor can fix that for you. No. So I, I think this COVID awareness has put people in the position of going, if I'm gonna be healthy, have a high quality life, it's up to me. And there isn't a pill that will ever be invented that can give you what fitness can give you. Let's say they invent a pill that stops you from 
putting weight on. In some ways, that would be fantastic because then people would say, okay, I don't have to feel self-conscious about the extra 10 pounds I have in my body, the extra 100, because I can just go and exercise and get the, the psychological, physiological benefits of it, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not just about the way you look. It's mostly about the way you feel. You know, but so back to your question, all these things tell us that fitness will explode. The desire to be self-healthy, under control, will lead to an explosion of it. You know, in the 1920s, after the last pandemic, the world partied because all this huge fear that you could just die and no one knew how or why or when. Well, but people this time know how, they know why, and they know when. And most of the disease was related to factors related to, not all, but had other comorbidity factors. So if you can reduce as many of those factors as possible by practicing healthy fitness practices, when the next pandemic happens, you'll be in better shape. And you know, the world has a history of having problems like this, right? You know, so it's not like this is never going to happen again. You know, when, when you're thinking about what we have, you know, kind of had to gravitate towards during the, the closures and the lockdowns and this digital way of, of finding an outlet to exercise. So, you know, you're looking at the nooms and the like the Pelotons and stuff. How, do you think this is going to be a hindrance for us or is it going to be helpful for us? Oh, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> well, it's Peloton and all the videos on uh, YouTube or even um, TikTok or every single person talking about exercise is going to help us. Yeah. I mean, I get asked this question all the time. When I first started the clubs up in the 80s, there was a, a running boom. People hadn't really run a lot prior to that, right? Yeah. And then people started running a lot. And everyone says, well, these fitness clubs you're opening, they're not going to be successful because of the running boom. And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> people are there running because they want to be in shape. Well, there's more than one way to get in shape. I mean, and I remember I had a bunch of runners. I was speaking to a running group. and I said, you need to go and exercise. You need to have your body strong so you can run faster. Also, no, you don't believe it. So I get dared and I went and ran the Boston Marathon. And the guy who was the fastest runner in London at the time, a marathoner, broke his hip about two months after that we ran the Boston Marathon. And he came back into the club and says, you know, if you could run the marathon at 6'5", 220 pounds, then I'm going to do this. So after he broke his hip and after he trained at the club, he had his fastest times ever. And that's what runners found, right? And so that was the 80s. And then in the 90s, Jane Fonda drove a whole fitness class thing with her videotapes about, you know, working out, right? You know, jazzercise got people that like dance to actually do fitness classes. That led to people coming into our clubs to do even more fitness classes before. And then there started to be fitness class studios everywhere. And they said, oh, that's going to kill you. I said, are you kidding? This means we'll up our game in our fitness classes. You know, and Maureen was in charge of that back in the 90s and the early part of the century. You know, the clubs just flourished. Every time something like this happens, you know, in the early part of the century, Billy Blanks, you know, was driving what you would call online sales now with his exercise program. It drove people into the clubs, right? And, you know, 
when the racquetball boom was going on, it ended up driving people in the clubs, the squash boom, the tennis boom, um, you know, pickleball. (laughs) (laughs) Everything helps us, you know, because you have to have an overall level of fitness, flexibility, strength, cardiovascular capability to do all these other activities, whether it's kayaking, hiking, mountain climbing, heliskiing, running, jumping, rollerblading. You need a basis and you can't do all these things all year round. That's right. So you come to the club. So I I see our industry is going to get bigger. If you look back, our industry is at least 10 times bigger than it was in 1980. At least 10 times. And why wouldn't it be 10 times bigger in 10 more years? I mean, there's no reason why not to. Because only 20% of the population works out in a fitness club right now. That means there's 80% of the population that needs a place to exercise, including the kids, right? So yeah, I think I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, it's interesting because you know I, I heard in a in a different industry in in professional theater there was there was talk about the biggest musical of all time or one of the biggest musicals of all time, Hamilton, and they filmed it and put it on Disney Plus, and it's like, would this prevent? people from actually going and see the show and it, it, they're going to be sold out once it reopens fully on Broadway. It's it, people want that live in-person experience. They want to, they want to feel it and they want to be around like-minded people. So I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. It, it, yeah. That's a great example because if you take musicians used to make their money off people buying their music, right. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, you can get access to a recording pretty inexpensively or free, right. Mm-hmm. Which is the same as a video on youtube concerts are selling out and people are paying outrageous prices you know for seats to concerts that they wouldn't never have considered before yeah you know people are paying the same for seats close to the front for a concert that you could have hired the whole band for 10 years ago (laughs) because that's the way the musicians are making their money yeah but why is there such a wide group of people willing to go to a concert of almost every kind of quality musician because they can have access to all the music and they want to see it live, right? Mm -hmm. You can see a picture of a thousand sunsets, but it's not the same thing as seeing it live. You know, so going to a club is live. I completely agree. So what, what advice do you have for our associates right now? Develop relationships in, in, in a a world of massive marketing, the relationship that counts is the one you have with the people you talk to. So, you know, to be a, to be a great associate, you need four things. Mm-hmm. And I'll put them in order of priority. The first, the number one, that if you have this, you don't, you can be soft in the other three, is caring. You have to have a decision you're going to care about the people you work with. And then the second one is to have a capability of using that caring to help selling them on changing their life for the better. So you have to be able to sell, but you're not selling used cars. You're selling health, longevity, and lifestyle. So if you care in the first place, you won't come across as a used car salesman. You'll come across as a caring doctor that you'd like to have at your bedside. And you have to ask people to make a commitment. So part of sales is asking people to make a commitment. So if you care incredibly, but you don't ask people to make a commitment, then they don't actually move ahead. So you have to ask them to make a commitment. It's like, I want you to go for a run with me tomorrow. That's asking. That's a salesperson. And you have to follow that up then with the service, showing up, being there, and caring. And then the fourth part is having knowledge. Now, most people think the knowledge is the most important thing. 
And the reason I put it forth is knowledge is a given. So it's assumed by the people that you're talking to that you, if you care about me, you're going to be some. You're going to be able to teach a class, be able to show me how to use the weights, be able to how to know how to keep the club clean and friendly, right? And if you have the first three characteristics, you will acquire the knowledge anyways. So if let's say you're working with someone and they have in you start to talk to someone and they've got Parkinson's and you know nothing about Parkinson's. In 15 minutes, you can go online and know more than most people knew 10 years ago before you could Google everything, right? And then you can build from there. But we know that exercise will help everybody at any level at any time, any age. So if you care about people and get into their heads to make them know that if they show up and they exercise, They'll make a difference, which is part of the sales process. And then you follow up with, okay, I'm here for you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to look after you. And then you just add the knowledge that you need as you need it. Yeah. You know, and I like that you started with caring because, I mean, you have to care before you're going to do something, but do it genuinely, right? Because it leads into your passion and the rest will follow. It's so good. One of the last things I want to talk to you about is, is a fun fact. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're a busy person and you need to get away from it all. And, you know, people do different things to get away from their day to day. And there's yoga, meditation, kayaking. But you get a helicopter to drop you off on top of an unmarked mountain and heli ski. So where did this attraction to heli skiing, like the bunny hill obviously wasn't enough. You had to take it up a notch. So where well, did it all start? I'm like this COVID example. So I got I got really bad arthritis when I was 32. I couldn't do a lot of different things, but I still had really strong legs from being a rower for, you know, 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so in skiing, you don't have to use your hands a whole lot. And in fact, the first two or three years I skied till I got some better control of my arthritis, I didn't even use poles. So you don't have to use your hands a whole lot. And your feet are locked into ski boots, so you don't have to use them. And, those, and my feet and my hands were the worst two parts of my body. I took up skiing because I, I needed an outlet other than simply going to the club. I wanted something else to do. And I wanted a reason to work out as hard as I did. Right. Right. You know, so I kept out all my workouts, but you know, I got out of skiing. I thought, Whoa, this is fun, man. The thing about skiing goes right back to what you said is when I was skiing, I wouldn't think about work. Right. Cause if you do, you fall down and get a boom and you get hurt. Right. And so took up skiing and then a friend said, go helicopter skiing. So when I went helicopter skiing, I was basically an intermediate. And I got through that first week of helicopter skiing because I was in great shape. So I didn't have the technical ability for skiing, but I didn't get exhausted. And then I became a better and better skier and just loved it. And the thing I love the most is hell skiing in the trees. So you get dropped off the top and, you know, if the mountain's high enough, depending on where you're doing it, there's no trees at the top, but then you eventually come in down to the tree line. And when you ski through the trees, you cannot, well, when you're on the top, you can't, unless you want to go off a cliff, you got to be totally focused, right? Right. And there's everything from crevasses to, well, cliffs, obviously, right? <laughs> so you got to be careful. You got to be careful and you go with guides and, you know, they, they know the stuff. And, and then when you ski through the trees, you got to be totally focused because otherwise you hit a tree and it's not pretty. No. But it's so much fun. The, the other thing I'd done before this was, you know, inline skating a lot, inline rollerblading. And that was a rush too, right? This this kind of continued that. And so I just, and you're out in nature and it's a little wild. So I just 
became more and more addicted to it. So it's something I look forward to doing all the time. So what would be what would be your most memorable mountain? I can give you a bunch of them. I can remember one time being out there and um, you're skiing. You want to ski in powder, and powder is fluffy snow, and it is like flying. It's literally like going through the stuff, and you actually giggle and laugh while you're doing it. It's just it's like being a giant kid, right? I was out with a group. It was four of us. Everybody else had gone in because it was cold. It was 25, 30 below. But that makes the snow the best. It's light and fluffy. And we were having a rush and happened to go to this particular place where I stopped just in time. And it was like a 100-foot drop. And I thought, okay, how do I get down from here? And uh, the only way down was down the chute. It was, it was about 5 to 10 feet wide down that the vertical part of the 100-foot cliff. Just shooting down that and then exploding into a, a huge field of deep snow. And you're literally going through the snow and the snow is flying over your head. And it's like, it's like no feeling on earth, right? Now, I have felt that very same feeling and had the snow break away into an avalanche. And, and, that, and that's kind of like, that's like, kind of like no feeling on earth either. It's like, okay, am I going to make it out of this one alive? I mean, so you have that balance of excitement and danger, right? But I, another funny one that comes to me is, because of my arthritis, my different bones deteriorate. And uh, so I had to add hip replacements and I got new femurs because the bone just disintegrated from the arthritis. So I, I got these in, uh, I guess it was April or May, and I'm hella skiing in uh, December. And going down this one particular area, and, and there's, there's these things called pillows. So you go off a, a little jump, let's say 10 feet, and you land on a big pile of snow and you hit it. And you go off that and drop maybe another five or 20 feet and hit another pillow of snow. And you, now this would be impossible to hike up in the summertime, but it's like a rush to ski down in the wintertime, right? So I'm on my third day of this first heli skiing trip after the new hips. And I hit one of these pillows and I get launched forward and I do a somersault. I do the whole somersault. I land on the next pillow and it launches me forward and I do another somersault. This time my skis go down into the earth backwards so i i don't fall down but i'm stuck right and then i i wiggle loose and get loose and i get down and the guide had seen this go on he says patch i didn't know you could do that and i looked at him i started laughing i said i had no clue i could do that either <laughs> right so you know my, my, my closest coming to doing a somersault was doing it with my special needs daughter on the trampoline right you know you get this kind of rush from stuff so every trip there's something like that that happens, right? I mean, I, I was, another time I remember skiing with one of my buddies and we're skiing through the trees and there's this big hole, but there's this one tree trunk that's gone across the hole. The hole's about 20 feet deep and this tree trunk's about two feet wide. And you got to make an instantaneous decision, right? And I go, well, I'll ski down the tree trunk, right? So I just go straight down the tree trunk, you know, and there's about two inches of snow in the tree trunk and I go straight down the tree trunk. And, you know, we're past the hole and I pull over and wait for my buddy. He comes down, he skis down the tree trunk that he saw me ski down too, right? And I said, wasn't that a blast? And he goes, yeah, if you were first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's, it's kind of like uh, when, you're, when you're first, you're going to make the decision. But when you're second, the snow isn't quite as good, right? So, you know, things like that you remember. Wow, that's incredible. Well, 
Patch, I know we're at time and I, I can't thank you enough for sitting down with me today and, and sharing what you shared. And, uh, you know, I, I could just see how everything that we have today and that we're a part of started from that one club into a hundred and that, you know, I, I really like the story that you shared about how you walked around the clubs in Australia and it wasn't about the money. It was about the experience and it's about the caring and the relationships. So thank you so much for today, Patch. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate you taking the time and being willing to listen. It's awesome. Thank you. Well, that's our show. Thank you once again to Patch for being an incredible guest and taking the time to be here today. The Good Life Podcast is produced by Rochelle Lowry and the intro outro song is by Ketza. Support Ketza by going to ketzamusic.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and well. 